Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Coming to you tonight from Jerusalem, where we are coming to the end of day four of the war that was launched with a brutal Hamas attack on about 20 small Israeli villages and farms and kibbutzes uh, early on Saturday morning. Um, each night I've been hearing the Israeli jets on bombing runs to uh, Gaza and returning back to prepare for their next sortie. And um, to tonight, as I speak to you from uh, the center of Jerusalem, uh, I do not hear any planes at all, which leads me to suppose that uh, we may be anticipating a very significant and large ground invasion of uh, the Gaza area uh, very soon indeed. Uh, there have been over 300,000 uh, troops from the reserves that have been mobilized. And for a country the size of Israel, that is huge. If one, one just thinks about the, the reality, um, Israel is about 7 million Jews. America is about uh, 330 million Americans. And so... Uh, um, it's you know the, the the population it's about between 30 and 40 times uh, larger and um what that means is that 300,000 Amer uh, Israeli troops mobilized um you know is is more like uh, 10 million america imagine 10 million people who are busy driving buses and working in restaurants and uh, and driving trucks, bringing food to the markets. Imagine if if all of those were suddenly taken and uh, forced to go to their military bases and, and not be able to do their jobs, right? You would naturally expect the economy to roll to a standstill. And um, in Israel, the 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 stress of maintaining that large number of people on reserve duty is certainly very real indeed. Now, talking about the, uh, the comparative sizes, it's important, I think, to note that um, about a 1,000 Israelis so far are known to have been murdered by the Hamas incursion on Saturday. Now, <clears throat> again, that would be the equivalent of... Um, you know, thirty to 40,000 Americans murdered in a single day. Think of 9-11, September the 11th, 2001. It was uh, about um, under 3,000, just under 3,000 people. Imagine, you know, uh, imagine 10 times that, 15 times that. And Israel is a very closely connected country. People know each other. And so um, everybody now, we know people who've attended funerals of people who've been killed. Um, it's There's no getting away from it over here. It's very real, very much uh, something that touches everybody's lives. And uh, 
And, you know, we we were not aware of just how big a deal this was because we didn't hear anything until uh, about um, 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. I was in synagogue with a friend and uh, the sirens went off. Now, you know, it hasn't sirens haven't been heard for a long time. And this is in a, a small town called Efrat, just south of Jerusalem. From my friend's balcony, you can actually see the, the buildings of Jerusalem over the hills. So we weren't far away. And um, a little while later, a soldier in uniform came by and said, uh, everyone should go home, end the services, everyone should go home. Uh, but it wasn't until that evening after we'd ended the holiday and ended the Sabbath that we began to have a sense of just what had taken place. And uh, the shock and trauma has been palpable. When you think about it, up till now, the biggest uh, attack, the most dangerous attack that Israel has sustained was on October the 6th, 1973. It was known as the Yom Kippur War, the war that was launched on the Day of Atonement. And it was a war that came very close to ending things for Israel. Uh, the first two days taken by shock and surprise with inadequate preparations and poor intelligence, Israel was simply not ready for the onslaught of the Egyptian army across the Suez Canal in the south and the onslaught of the Syrian army across the Golan Heights in the north. And uh, uh, as I say, for, for two days, things looked very, very bad. The death toll was very high among Israeli soldiers. But here's the interesting thing. The um, civilian death toll during the Yom Kippur War that came close, uh, I mean, it, it ended the career of legendary Israeli General Moshe Dayan with the eye patch. It ended the career of Prime Minister Golda Meir uh, because it came so close. And the Arab armies exulted in having come close to wiping out the shame and humiliation of the Six-Day War. They nearly ended Israel. And uh, the civilian death toll during the Yom Kippur War was zero, not a single civilian killed, because part of the Israeli military doctrine is protecting civilians at all costs, so much so that the army is dedicated to fighting wars on enemy territory, not on their own. And this was why the Six-Day War was fought in the Sinai Desert and on the Golan Heights, but never in Israeli population centers. Israeli civilians have been protected and defended uh, diligently and courageously by the Israel Defense Force, the IDF. Well, this last Saturday, a thousand civilians wiped out, and the specter of the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews in the middle of the 20th century st still hangs hauntingly over Israel. And so the first thought that almost every Israeli voluntarily had on Saturday when we began to uh, uh, recognize the uh, the colossal um, proportions of this attack was that the last time this many Jews had been murdered in one day would have been during World War II, during the Nazi Holocaust, during the genocide of the Jews. So uh, this 
this this resonated uh, very emotionally and very very intensely with uh, with people throughout Israel and um, caused tremendous um, and continues to cause tremendous upset. On Sunday evening, uh, by the end of the second day of the war, um, Susan Lappin and I walked to the busiest section in Jerusalem, a place that ordinarily bustled with um, nightlife, with restaurants, with stores, open to all hours, bright lights, activities, entertainment, a stage, just a place where on any night of the week you ordinarily would see, uh, you know, uh, probably uh, 10,000 people gather mulling around, going from restaurant to restaurant, from, from street display to street display. And uh, Susan and I walked there on Sunday night. It was quite eerie. We were really creeped out. It was deserted and dark, everything shut, because Israelis had just become aware of what they had suffered, what had been inflicted upon them. And um, and they were completely shocked into uh, paralysis. Um, the, part of the reason is that uh, they were very haunting videos and images of um, Israelis under attack in these uh, approximately 20 small towns and villages um, calling on their phones, is the army coming to help us? Um, and we, we were shown, you could see videos online of um, Arab terrorists literally going from house to house, setting them on fire. And as the people um, began to be asphyxiated inside from the smoke, they came running out and were then literally butchered. Some had their throats. I, I'm, I'm not going to get too, too vivid, um, if you don't mind. It's just too blood chilling and, and, um, and, and her just unbearably horrible. Um, 40 babies found that had been decapitated. It's uh, torture, rape, uh, the most unbelievable things that happened. But what what shocked um, Israel during those first two days was uh, stupefaction, just complete bafflement and incomprehensibility at how this could have happened. Because other than the the border between North and South Korea, there is no other more policed border in the world than the 40 or 50 miles of Gaza border fence separating Gaza from Israel. And it's watched 24-7 by multiple layers of drones and electronic surveillance and uh, and physical presence it's all set so that if anything larger than a fox moves near the fence, alerts go off. And yet, at 6.30 on Saturday morning, giant yellow bulldozers went up to the fence from the Gaza side and began tearing it apart, creating huge gaps through which poured uh, over a thousand fully armed uh, Islamic terrorists. Uh, a small number of them flew in overhead on uh, motorized uh, hang gliders and uh, flying flying parachutes. I forget the, the exact term, but um, for the most part, uh, they came across on motorcycles and in small pickup trucks. 
And, and they themselves said, you know, we expected to be immediately confronted by the army. Turns out they had five to six hours, extraordinarily, five to six hours uh, with before the army got there. And this is all very hard to understand because these uh, villages that were attacked and so mercilessly uh, suffered massacres, um, it's 20 minutes by helicopter from Tel Aviv, from military headquarters, from a dozen military air bases and, and army bases. It's it's right there. Israel's a small country. And so how is it that people were left to fend for themselves against this trained, rampaging mob of terrorists for hours? And so... Obviously, this is something that's going to end up in a commission of inquiry. Uh, it'll be bigger than the commission of inquiry, the Agronat Commission after the Yom Kippur War. And that one resulted in the uh, termination of the career of General Moshe Dayan. Uh, it ended Go Prime Minister Golda Meir's political career because in Israel, the military is everything. The military is looked up to as everything that makes Israel possible. Israel would have been overrun time and time and time again, were it not for Israel's much heralded uh, intelligence system and, and military system. And uh, of course, the Yom Kippur War was a massive intelligence failure. Uh, Israel uh, was struck by a surprise attack and, uh, and a surprise attack that really looked as if it was going to achieve its end of wiping out Israel and killing off all the Jews that were living at the time in the, in the land. And um, this failure uh, that occurred on Saturday morning, um, October the 7th, uh, was significantly more substantial. Uh, it, was, it, it was a failure hard to comprehend, intelligence and uh, military, hard to comprehend, and I have no explanation for it at all. Uh, but I can tell you this, that right now, the atmosphere throughout Israel is one of unification. Uh, people are, are dedicated. People are standing in the streets um, throwing food and bottles of water and, and uh, candy and, and hot dogs onto uh, military transport trucks that are carrying reservists. Uh, both to the southern front near Gaza, as well as to the north, just in case Hezbollah decides to join their Hamas brethren and launch an attack into northern Israel from Lebanon. Um, there, there have been um, small incidents there during the day today. And again, to remind you, I'm recording this on uh, Tuesday evening in Israel. Uh, it is actually um, Tuesday morning or Tuesday lunchtime in um, in the United States of America, just to give you a sense of uh, of the timing. And um, uh, a word about rockets. Uh, yes, the um, uh, the Gazans have been sending somewhere around about five thousand rockets into Israel since Saturday morning. And I should explain to you that um, these are unguided. They're sort of pointed in the rough general direction, and uh, they're launched from a launcher that sends off about 12 of them at a time, um, mounted on the back of a pickup truck. 
um, you, you don't want to be thinking V2 rocket of World War II vintage or, or anything even more recent. Uh, a V2 rocket stood about um, uh, 20 or 30 feet tall. It was a, a gigantic machine that um, uh, was sent from occupied Europe by the Nazis into England, mostly London. Those were uh, devastatingly destructive and considerably more accurate than uh, what we're seeing here. Not to minimize it, but um, these are relatively small. Um, they These uh, Kassam rockets that the Gazans are sending, um, they stand about four, they're about four foot long, four or five feet long. They're about um, the... Uh, uh, the the diameter of 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 a big bottle of Coca Cola, perhaps something like that, and uh, they do carry a warhead, but um, it's not huge. Let me put it this way: they're not going to be doing a lot of damage against concrete apartment buildings. Most most buildings in Israel are built of concrete because there's not a whole lot of wood here, but they have plenty of concrete, and um, and so these rockets. If they if they land on cars, they cause a fire. If they actually hit the side of a building, uh, they do cause damage. If they land anywhere near people, they do cause death. But um, the main purpose of these rockets, uh, Happy Warriors, is to overwhelm Israel's Iron Dome system. Um, Israel's Iron Dome system was developed jointly by Israel and the United States, and uh, Israel builds them. Israel has deployed 10 Iron Dome batteries, and they're working on another five. They want to increase it to 15. Uh, each battery is designed to be able to protect about uh, 60 square miles of residential area. And uh, here's how the system works. Um by the way, they are very, very expensive systems because there's a huge amount of very high-speed computing going on. Uh, sensors, uh, eyes sense uh, a um, the launch of a missile from Gaza, and within milliseconds, the trajectory is calculated and a rough idea of where it is likely to land out. It's never it. There's always several of them because they they have multiple launchers mounted on the backs of little trucks, as I said. And uh, and as soon as they've got the trajectory figured out, uh, this thing is still rising in the air, uh, two things happen. The first thing is an alarm is sent to the siren centers of wherever the rockets are going to land. And they're remarkably accurate on this. The sirens go off and Israelis immediately stop whatever they're doing and run into their bomb shelters. And um, we did this on Saturday morning during the uh, Simchat Torah service. Um, when the sirens went off, the service immediately stopped and I was just swept along with the crowd down into the uh, basement area where the uh, bomb shelter was located. Um, that's how these things uh, work. And that's the first thing that happens once the Iron Dome has detected the trajectory of the incoming rockets. The second thing that happens is that uh, it launches its own uh, battery of rockets. And I mean, this is very amazing stuff. Imagine, if you will, um, imagine that you're holding a rifle and somebody 100 yards away from you 
is going to fire a 357 Magnum revolver, your job now is to use your rifle to fire a bullet that'll hit the bullet that just exited the barrel of the revolver 100 yards away. You, you see how preposterous that sounds. I mean, I'm going to fire a rifle to hit a bullet, and yet that's exactly what the uh, Iron Dome system does. And uh, we saw we saw this happen. We we heard it happen, and we watched the contrails in the sky numerous times during the course of uh, this past Saturday uh, during the day. And so you know you'll see the contrails of the ascending rockets from Gaza, and within a short space of time, seconds at the most, um, you'll see the sound. You'll see the trails of the Iron Dome rockets ascending. And then there's a clash. You hear the thud of the explosions as the Iron Dome take out the rockets of the Hamas that have been sent over. And that, of course, is the main purpose. The main purpose is to deplete Israel's uh, resources. When you think about it, of course, um, the capacity to wage war is essentially an economic question. Um, every single bullet costs money, every single gun costs money, every pound of high explosive costs money. And um, and so uh, how much does it cost Hamas to fire off a Qassam rocket? Um, somewhere between $75 and $150. That's what it costs. I mean, these are pieces of pipe, and <laughs> there's really nothing to them. And um, what does it cost to fire the Iron Dome? Um, somewhere around $100,000 to $200,000 every single time. You understand that uh, this is a very, very uh, profitable game for Hamas because there is a limited amount, a small country like Israel. I mean, how many Iron Dome rounds can they actually fire? How many do they have available? At some point, Hamas's almost limitless ability to shoot these pieces of uh, uh, exaggerated plumbing up into the sky which triggers the Iron Dome system. And again, you may say, well, why, you know, if these are not that damaging, why does Israel deploy the Iron Dome system? And the answer is, once again, Israel's military doctrine, which is protection of civilians at all costs, which is why, as I have said already, the death toll of civilians from Saturday's attack is just more than Israelis can handle. It's just... People are speechless, people are traumatized, people are shocked. And at the same time, um, there is a sense of of confidence, a sense of uh, unit, unity, and also very much a sense that we're not going to deal right now with what went wrong. Uh, what we're going to deal with now is uh, ending the Hamas threat once and for all. That's what Israelis feel is about to happen. Um, my sense, I, I think it's very likely that a ground action will begin in hours rather than days. Um, the, the fact that I'm not hearing the Gaza bombardment going on right now suggests to me that perhaps they're getting ready to send in a, a land invasion force. Um, it seems to be in the final analysis, if there's to be any hope at all of retrieving hostages, 
and those chances are slim at best. Uh, but if there's to be any chance at all, and if there's to be any chance of of really cutting off the head of the Hamas monster, um, it can't all be done by air bombardment. It is going to require boots on the ground. And uh, with the very large mobilization of reserves, it would seem that that is exactly what is planned. It would not surprise me if uh, by the time uh, I awake tomorrow morning, which will be Wednesday morning in Israel and uh, late middle of the night in the United States, um, that this uh, action may already be underway. We shall we shall see. But Israel certainly cannot sustain a lengthy period of um, 300,000 reservists mobilized because the, the fact is that you can see when you, you you can see that businesses are operating at reduced capacity, restaurants are either closed or operating with a limited capacity, buses and taxis are not running as frequently as they ordinarily do because so many people are in uniform and either at the southern front or at the northern front. Um, there are also people guarding on um, in the settlement area of Judah and Samaria, Judea and Samaria. There are people guarding in Jerusalem. So it is a, a country at war. That is clearly uh, what is happening. And on a, a, a broader front, what is happening, I think, is that we have to realize what kind of battle this is. Um, I was quite astonished to watch a BBC newscast on um, Sunday. I believe it was on the second, second day of the war. And this BBC, quote, uh, Middle East expert said, uh, what we have to understand is that this war is about nothing but land. And he's completely wrong. That simply is not true. Um, regardless of land, the determination of um, uh, Arab armies to drive Israel into the ocean, the determined reluctance to accept the existence of Israel, uh, the the stated uh, and proclaimed mission of killing off every Jew in the land of Israel. All of this is well documented. It's the the, the idea of trading land for peace was always a non-starter and appealed to nobody but um, far left, uh, idealistic, naive, uh, woke people uh, around the world. The idea that somehow or another, if one would only give land to the Arabs, peace would come. It's, it's laughable, and Arabs themselves laughed at it. This is not about land in the slightest, and uh, nobody had any I, uh, any intention of, uh, from the Arab side, the intention was to take as much land as they could and certainly not return with peace. Uh, on the Israeli side, unfortunately, there was this naive idea. Um, after the Six-Day War, Again, legendary General Moshe Dayan, in an act of unbelievable naivete and foolishness, handed over the entire uh, Temple Mount area to the Arabs. I, excuse me, what does losing a war mean? You know, and as I think 
people who are interested probably know a little bit about the history that this area um, after World War II was governed by British mandate. And finally, uh, even though that in 1917, Britain uh, made the Balfour Declaration, uh, was it 17? Um, let me let me take that back. I'm, I'm not 100% sure of that date. Um, but a statement that Her Majesty's government views with faith, the idea of a Jewish homeland in uh, Palestine. Um, but the bottom line is that uh, Britain became weary of running this part of the world. And in um, 1948, uh, basically um, arranged a partition plan with the United Nations in which a small sliver of land was granted to the uh, Jewish settlement and uh, the bulk of the surrounding area was granted to the Arabs. This United Nations partition plan was accepted by the Jews, rejected by the Arabs. The Jews went ahead and declared the state of Israel in existence in May 1948. And at that very, very moment, same day, uh, all the Arab nations contiguous to Israel declared war on Israel and invaded. That really, by all logical standards, that should have been the end. Uh, that's many, many, many tens of millions of Arabs invading uh, a small settlement of a few hundred thousand Jews, not much hope. Nonetheless, the war waged, and uh, a few months later, uh, Israel had won, and uh, they won expanded territory. None of this was ever accepted, of course. Uh, again, in 1967, uh, Israel was under attack. The, the straits had been shut. Um, Israel was embargoed. And um, they finally launched their attack to open the borders and to be able to resume the flow of oil to Israel and everything else they needed. And um, and again, territory, the Golan Heights and the uh, uh, the Sinai Peninsula were captured by Israel, and um, certain uh, certain parts returned, uh, parts of the West Bank captured by Israel. And um, and again, you've got to remember, up till that point, Israel at its narrowest point was about 10 miles across. It always uh, lived under the threat of being divided in two. It was a huge logistical and military problem. The War of 1967 solved that. And um, and so, you know, here, here they are. And um, extraordinarily against all odds, uh, Israel still survives, and um, people are baffled. I mean, the, the army, the Israel Defense Force, which has always promised and delivered, and on Saturday, October the 7th, 2023, a colossal failure uh, of, of proportions that are, are terrifyingly incomprehensible. But as I said, um, everybody is of the uh, shared and common opinion that this will be investigated after the war is over, when everything settles down and the danger of Hamas has been neutralized. Um, it is my view, and I have no evidence and no inside information on this, but knowing the players, knowing the history, and uh, taking my cues from certain things, big and small, that have been happening, 
it is my uh, deep conviction that um, Saudi Arabia is in very close communication with Israel and has been since Saturday. Uh, it is my view that uh, Saudi Arabia has essentially said to Israel, go for it, do what you have to do. And uh, we will work on making sure that Iran and Syria know that if they interfere on the northern front, that um, they will be dealing with a very large problem. Um, I don't want to go into the Shiite issue and the Sunni issue in uh, in Arab politics. Suffice it to say that uh, Saudi Arabia is as unhappy with Iran as Israel is. And um, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, changed the economic and political contours of the Middle East in a way that had never been done by anybody else. He really has. And so um, for the last few years, Israelis have been vacationing in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and uh, Gulf residents have been coming to Israel. There's a lot of trade and tourism between them. Saudi Arabia is somehow involved in this as well. Um, and uh, I have no doubt, as I said, that um, Saudi Arabia is sort of somehow on some level unofficially uh, watching Israel's back on what is going on now. Uh, it is my view that uh, if there was going to be any serious opportunistic um, participation from Syria or from uh, Hezbollah in the north in Lebanon or from Iran, my feeling is it uh, was going to, it would have happened already. And uh, I don't think it is happening. Um, but I, as I say, I do think Israel is on the threshold of uh, putting boots on the ground in Gaza and literally decapitating Hamas, uh, making sure that Hamas is no longer a threat to anybody anywhere ever again. I mean, and honestly, I don't know that politically the government in Israel can do anything less. Um, the the population, and I, I can't emphasize this enough, on, although I know I've, I've said this repeatedly, but the population um, is, is so utterly um, traumatized by what happened on Saturday that a thousand and more terrorists cut through the border enter Israel, attack about 20 small settlements, and inflict the worst civilian casualties the state of Israel has ever had in 40, in 75 years. Um, I don't know that the people of Israel will tolerate anything less than the annihilation of Hamas. And so that's why between that and the size of the mobilization, uh, it's it's my feeling that uh, we are going to see Israel going into Gaza on the ground very, very soon, much sooner than later. And um, God bless them. Uh, this is not going to be a simple operation. It's not going to be an inexpensive operation in uh, in blood and treasure. And um, the the story is is by no means over yet. Um, we shall we shall see and uh, as far as we are concerned uh we pray and um and hope that uh all 
works well. You know, a lot of the statements have been incredibly silly. Uh, some people in America, officials in America, have been saying, we urge restraint. Uh, violence never solves anything. Well, as I'm sure you as a happy warrior know, that simply is a lie. Violence always solves something. It was explicitly violence that ended the war with Japan. It was General Curtis LeMay's firebombing of Tokyo early in 45, followed by the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. That's what solved the problem of the war with Japan. And it was the utter obliteration of Nazi Germany that solved the problem with Germany. Churchill said nothing but total surrender, no negotiations. We will inflict unmitigated violence on Germany until there is total and complete surrender. See, violence really does work, contrary to what people say. And um, and so there is going to have to be violence inflicted on the terrorist cells in, in Gaza uh, in order to to terminate this. Another false doctrine that you hear a lot of is proportional response. It's, you know, it's simply not a reality. You know, just just think about it. If, um, you know, if, if you were being um, assaulted by a home invader, would you be thinking about proportional response? After all, he hasn't killed you yet, right? He, he's just trying to terrify you and steal your possessions and maybe harm your family. Now, there isn't such a thing as a proportional response. You want an all-out devastating removal of the threat. And that's exactly what the Allies did to Japan and Germany in World War II. It's exactly what you have to do under all circumstances. So this is a completely false doctrine that a response should be proportional. Uh, you punch me once, so I'll punch you once. No, that's not how the world really works. You know that and I know that. So um, that, that gives you a little bit of a picture. If circumstances warrant, uh, I will do another report uh, from Jerusalem, um, but other if not, then it'll be uh, next week that you will next hear from me, uh, and I hope that uh, things will quieten down with a complete victory on the side of civilization against barbarism, for that is exactly what this conflict is really all about. Um, think about this. If I ask you the question, how many civilizations are there in the world? And um, the answer is very simple. One, it is Western civilization. And if you don't believe me, believe the dead Africans who drown in the Mediterranean trying desperately to reach Western civilization. Speak to the millions of people from South America who have trudged through jungle and desert to cross the Rio Grande River to enter Western civilization. Speak to the vast hordes of people who have immigrated to France and to Sweden. Speak to the huge numbers of people who have immigrated to Canada. Western civilization is the only civilization there is. How many cultures are there in the world? Oh, about 5,000 of varying degrees of effectiveness. And by the way, 
the only cultures that have proven to be durable and effective are those that practice uh, marriage, mono, monogamous marriage, one man married to one woman. It's kind of interesting that that's uh, the only kind that works leading towards civilization. But um, civilization is nothing other than the Bible projected onto a larger political landscape. That's all it is. That is what Western civilization is all about. This is why over 97% of scientific, technological, and medical advances of the thousand years leading up to World War I took place in Christendom. They took place in Western civilization. Yes, it's true that the Chinese did know about gunpowder, but all they did was paint pretty pictures in the sky with it. China today, by the way, is a very different story. But um, it was only Western civilization that had the Industrial Revolution. It was Western civilization that developed banking and commerce, that developed the idea of a corporation. Uh, it was Western civilization that developed medicine. It was Western civilization that began to build a role for women in society. It was Western civilization that eschewed violence in favor of voting, that replaced bullets with ballots. Western civilization created civilization. Western civilization is a biblical vision for human interaction. And um, it was, by the way, clear that um, colonization uh, by uh, European powers, England, Belgium, Germany, France, uh, was not a big, evil, horrible sin. You know, and I, I know that for many people, this is shocking and, and unendurable, but uh, the the dogma from the left at the moment that the worst sin in the world was simply not true. A civilization was brought to parts of the world that simply did not have it. And, um, and these values of civilization are under assault. They have been for some time. And what you're seeing taking place in Israel right now is an ultimate battle, a titanic struggle between civilization and barbarism. That's what it is. And it, barbarism has always knocked on the gates of civilization. Barbarism has always tried to invade and destroy because after having destroyed outposts of civilization, barbarism then lives in the wrecked ruins of what they destroyed, knowing that it was still better than anything the barbarians could possibly have built for themselves. That's the truth, and that is the reality. And, and that's really exactly what is going on right now. Uh, it is a struggle. It's not about religion. It's not about the land. It's a struggle between barbarism and civilization. And it should give pause to think for Americans in general to realize that the forces of barbarism have taken over the American university campus. 
Um, the, the same is true in different parts of Europe. Barbarism can infect people of high education. Barbarism can infect people of high IQ. And it did in Germany. No one could have been better educated or more cultured than the Germans. But Nazism represented barbarism against the civilization of England and America. That's what happened in World War II. And this is part of God's revealed plan for humanity, that there will always be this titanic struggle between barbarism and civilization. And one has to realize barbarism is not always practiced by savages in loincloths hurling spears. And uh, that's not true at all. Barbarism can be practiced by university professors in three-piece Armani suits. Uh, barbarism can be practiced by people under all circumstances, all conditions. And civilization can be protected and is often protected by people of all races and colors. Civilization is frighteningly fragile, and it is based on the values of Judeo-Christian tradition. That's what it is. And um, Islam has nearly always, in its fight against civilization, whether it was Islam trying to invade Europe and reaching the gates of Vienna in September 1683, that was civilization defending itself against attack by barbarism. Uh, the destruction of the Ottoman fleet at Lepanto, that was the final gasp of barbarianism at that time, uh, being defeated by the Christian forces of Europe. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson sent, um, sent uh, um, Lieutenant Decatur to North Africa to subdue the Barbary pirates who had... Um, captured and imprisoned and, and kidnapped and held as hostage Christians from towns all around Europe. Uh, it was, again, a fight between civilization and barbarism. This is ongoing. And each and every one of us deep in our hearts have to ask ourselves, which side are we on? Are we willing to shed blood and spill treasure in order to defend civilization? Or are we going to delight in the savagery of burning fires as looting takes place? And we saw this, right, in the summer of 2020 in the United States of America and in many occasions since then, uh, the forces of barbarism trying to take down the fragile and perilous civilization that the founders gave when the United States of America was established in 1776. Um, and and to, this, to this very day, this battle continues. We see it in heightened, sharp relief in Israel right now, where Israel, a bastion of Western civilization, is defending itself against a horrific and brutal assault by the forces of the barbarians. That is the reality. Barbarians can come in every color and in every clothing and in every garb. It doesn't matter. Uh, barbarianism is determined 
to destroy all the values that have laboriously over many, many, many years built the beauties and tranquility of Western civilization. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear happy warriors, uh, it is with uh, anxiety in my heart, of course, that I speak to you this evening and present to you an unusual episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, as I said, uh, I hope it'll be uh, another week and a, another episode of the show will be posted. However, uh, if events warrant it, I will do a special between now and then. But uh, praying for good times for everybody except for the barbarians. Uh, I am your rabbi, wishing you a week of growth and progress with your five Fs, with your family, with your faith, with your friendships, with your finances, and with your fitness. Indeed, the five pillars of civilized life. God bless you.